So welcome to Zooming In With. This week, very excitedly, we're Zooming In with Professor Duncan Green, my colleague at the LSE. The tables are being turned. Um, I'm afraid you'll have me as a far less charming and incisive host, but a far more interesting guest. Um, I'm Jean-Paul Faguet, Professor of the Political Economy of Development at the International Development Department. And we've got Professor Duncan Green, Strategic Advisor for Oxfam, and also Professor in Practice in my department. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you very much. I'm excited uh, about the concept of a revenge podcast. So let's see how this goes. Fantastic. Let's see how it goes. So tell us how you got here. How did you come to be where you are now? Um, I, so I say to my students, you know, whatever you do, don't do what I did. So I, um, I studied theoretical physics. Uh, I then wandered around Latin America as a lonely and miserable backpacker for a couple of years and learned Spanish and got, a, got very involved in Latin American politics at a time when it was really grim. So I lived in Argentina under the military uh, when there was lots of human rights abuses going on. I then got very involved in human rights work around Central America, El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, during the time of the, the sort of Reagan years of, of US military intervention and guerrilla wars going on. And from that, I sort of drifted into journalism and writing and ended up writing a couple of books on Latin America and working for a think tank on Latin America. And I entered the sort of NGO aid development scene comparatively late when I was about 40. And I went over to work for CAFOD, the uh, Catholic Agency for England and Wales as a policy wonk. Um, so uh, random walk, I think is probably the most accurate. And then drift, uh, as I, uh, I spent a short time at DFID, I then went to Oxfam as head of research. And I started to get more interested in academia. I did a PhD uh, in 2010 and started spending a bit of time at the LSE giving random lectures and decided I liked it. And the LSE kind of decided they liked me. And they said, do you want to come here and be this weird thing, a professor in practice, which sounded great to me. So you did a, you, you studied theoretical physics and then you did a PhD after being in Latin America. What, what was your PhD in? <laughs> so my PhD was, um, uh, 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 called a PhD by publication okay. um, and so it's this wonderful system for sort of late career people I think is probably the, the polite way to describe it where if you've written a hundred thousand words on a coherent topic and had it published you submit that mm -hmm. along with a 15,000 word critical review of yourself so it's very therapeutic oh, wow. it's very okay. therapeutic so I spent yeah, a few months. I, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the PhD took a few months. I'm really sorry to all PhD people out there. Gnashing um, <laughs> <laughs> of teeth. Yeah. I spent a few months in the library reading all the things I should have read before I wrote all these books. Um, and the topic was the interaction between citizens and states, which was a theme which had been emerging a lot in my writing uh, in, yeah, prior to that. So it was a fantastic chance to actually sort of go back and re rethink and re sort of and sort of put foundations in after you've already had the building. Um, hmm. So it was so it was a PhD more in the social sciences or development or something. Oh like totally that. it was with the politics yeah. department at Oxford Brooks. Yes, it was nothing, right. to, nothing to do with physics. I've nothing to, I think I've read one I've read Stephen Hawking and I finished Stephen Hawking. Okay, um, good. But that's about the only physics book I've read since I left college. Is there still a physicist in there somewhere? Definitely, definitely. I've, yeah. I've come to terms with the fact that I, there's various advantages to having studied physics. One is that economists are scared of me, which is great. Good, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but the other one is that it gives you this idea of thinking in systems, especially sort of modern physics, quantum mechanics, you know, wave theory, those kind of things. It gives you a kind of 
it gives you a set of mental models which I find very useful in thinking about things like power and politics. So I think it does change the way you see the world and you can't escape from it. That's interesting. That's interesting. Now tell us about, about a PIP, as you're lovingly called, a professor in practice. What is that like? Um, I think it's wonderful. I mean, a PIP, it's, 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 I think it's, it's semi-formal. It's been kind of invented at the LSE. Various departments do it. And the idea is you get people in who've got experience in the outside world doing a particular thing, involved roughly practice, um, and you bring them into to, to the LSE to, to, to sort of um, add a different perspective to things. And so I think the, the, the thing I brought into the LSE is a lot of work on advocacy, trying to change government or corporate policies through a mixture of kind of insider conversation and lobbying and outsider sort of activism. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I do a course uh, with Tom Kirk at the LSE on basically training activists, but, but from quite a theoretical perspective by activist standards in terms of how does change come about and how could you influence it. So I really like that part. I love the, I always like being between camps. I'm never comfortable in any camp. Mm -hmm. And so this is perfect. So, you know, from all my, all the other LSE professors, I think see a PIP as somewhat less than a real professor. And the outside world probably sees PIP as more than a real professor. And I'm sort of, <laughs> I'm comfortable with that ambiguity. <laughs> what was it like? How would you describe the experience of, of joining our department when you, so I, I should say that there, there are several PIPs, but Duncan is the only person who is the, a real PIP in the sense of actually spending half his time at the LSE and the other half back at Oxfam. We have some other professors in practice who are very honored people, but they spend all their time at their, at their day jobs, as it were. So you're the person who's really sort of shaping what, what this thing is. What was it like for you when, when you first came and joined our department and sat in departmental meetings and met with students and taught them? What was it like compared to the rest of your life before? A bit of a culture shock, I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, you realize when you move into a very different community, like, um, you know, uh, a university from having spent, you know, 15 years in NGOs and most of the, t and the previous time in the voluntary sector and journalism, you realize how many things people take for granted in any one community and, mm -hmm. and how much new language there is to learn and how many new um, uh, behaviors there are to observe. So I feel quite anthropological sometimes when I'm in staff meetings and I see all these august professors spend half an hour arguing about who's going to do the photocopying. Um, it's, a, it's a revelation to me. Um, the students I find absolutely amazing. Um, uh, we, yeah, it's, it's a real privilege teaching at the LSE because you've got very smart, very committed students coming from all over the world and interacting with each other and a chance to talk to them and, and work with them on, yeah. So on my course, each student has to come up with a campaign or a, uh, an advocacy exercise they want to run in their country. Um, and then they do, they write a, uh, a proposal for that campaign or, or advocacy exercise, and they're marked on the basis of whether their, their proposal is any good. And that gives you an amazing insight into the worlds they're coming from, the countries that, and the issues they care about. And, and each year I do a kind of x-ray of, this is what the students are talking about this year. And, and I just find all of that incredibly exhilarating, I have to say. Fantastic. Um, let's get on to your paper. Now, you've written a, a paper recently, a working paper um, about COVID and critical junctures. So first of all, what is a critical juncture? So a critical juncture is a, a, a concept that's used a lot in political science, which is saying that change does not happen smoothly in uh, most political, economic, social systems. 
there are spikes and there are spikes of opportunity and spikes of threats. And these often are, uh, take place around a crisis or an upheaval of some kind. So wars, scandals, pandemics, but also I've seen this at, at sort of grassroots level. If you go and talk to a community about you know, a change process in that community, how did you win back the rights to this piece of land or this piece of water? When they tell you the story, you realize that there were particular moments which will be absolutely pivotal for that community as well. So if you're thinking about how change happens, it's quite a good thing to try and identify these moments of change. Now, when we talk about them in retrospect, we talk about them as moments of change. And the thing I realized when I was trying to write this paper is that actually these moments have extension and, and sometimes the extension can be a couple of years. And it's really different when you're in one of these critical junctures as we are now, because everything is so obscure and so unclear. You're, you're, you're navigating through a fog. And I sort of went back to the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis where the things we thought were going to happen did not happen. And the things that did happen took us completely by surprise. So we thought in the global financial crisis that the shift from the G7 to the G20 was going to change global governance. We're going to have this new steering committee, which was going to step up and do loads of really interesting things. And it just didn't. On the other hand, the thing that did happen was it destroyed trust in the political class uh, and the business class and laid the basis for populism, Brexit, Donald Trump, and a load of other things, which we just, it never occurred to us. So I think one of the things in the paper is to say what activists in particular do when they go into a critical juncture is say, I was right before, and now because of the critical juncture, I'm even writer, right? right? So they see what they want to see. They see their issue amplified by this moment of change. So if you're an environmental activist, you say, you see, we don't need to fly. We don't need to use cars. Let's all do what I was saying before. Or if you're a, uh, you know, and, and everybody does that. But actually we need to somehow find a way to spot the new things that are coming and the things which are genuinely getting traction because of the critical juncture, which means we have to sort of slightly step outside our own um, priorities and, and learn to look a bit more dispassionately at what's going on. Right. Okay. Okay. So critical juncture isn't just a, a shock after which the previous equilibrium is more or less restored with costs and some people dead or some, some economic output lost. It's a shock that leads to a new equilibrium that's different in some important way, a new path, as it were. And may not be better, maybe worse. I maybe mean, worse, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, so it's a tipping point of some kind. So what do you think are some of the, the key differences of the new equilibrium that are going to arise after COVID? So, so I wrote uh, something on my blog uh, last week saying, yeah, how do you step outside your filter bubble? How do you step outside the echo chamber, which is telling you all the things you cared about are even more important now? And one way to do that, I think, is to see what has surprised you, either about the message or the messenger in the things that you've been reading over the past couple of months. And I was surprised by the Pope's Easter message, which said, uh, actually, there's a really good case for a universal basic income. Yeah. Um, that was like, oh, I wouldn't, you know, that's not necessarily a thing you would have expected. If there's a surprise involved, then maybe that suggests it's not just you listening to what you want to hear. I was surprised by a Financial Times editorial, which got a lot of circulation in April, saying, actually, this is a new time for a new kind of social contract between citizens and states. Things really have to shift. We can't go back to the old world. Economists having a massive piece on carbon taxes, bit less of a surprise. So just 
I think the things that are come out of, going to come out of this are uh, more interest in social protection, which also came out of 2008, 2009, actually. Mm -hmm. But it could take it to a new level, like the universal basic income or something like that. I think there'll be, uh, and I may be listening to my own echo chamber here, but I think there will be a, a re-evaluation of the care economy, that thing which is missing from GDP, but it's, yeah. uh, it's clearly become absolutely central in the COVID response. And all that, that shift from just talking about the NHS in Britain, the National Health Service, to talking about the NHS and care workers, and those care workers are both people who are paid and people who are not paid, I think has been quite a big sort of underlying shift. Um, other things, I'm not sure whether what the impact will be on things like um, uh, climate change at the moment. I just can't see whether things will just flip back to how they were or whether there will actually be some kind of shift towards decarbonisation. Uh, I'm honestly not sure on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think are the, the, the effects on the students? Uh, so take the, the point of view of the students that you're teaching right now at the LSE. They're about to graduate and start on their careers. How is this going to affect their, their lives and their professional experience as development people? So I had a conversation with a student yesterday who was saying, what do I do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, so a couple of things. One is I think it's had a really, I mean, quite marked effect on, to be honest, on mental health, not just for students, but, um, and, and it's almost like one of the interesting things or alarming things about COVID is that it's taken any existing frailty or fragility, whether of individuals or organizations or political systems, and massively amplified them. Yeah. So, you know, Oxfam had a financial crisis already before COVID, and, that's, and it's now been made much worse. We've had to, uh, we're, we're looking for a large number of uh, job reductions. You know, it's really, really serious. And I'm seeing that personally with students. So some students are actually finding this very difficult on a personal level. So that's a kind of, and I think that's not just students. Everybody's uh, having their COVID moment. I, I read something yesterday saying I felt like I was living in the matrix, but it's a really rubbish remake. Um, every, all my interactions apart from with my cats and my immediate family are on, the, on a laptop. And I used to think I liked online existence, but actually I'm going off it quite fast. Yeah. Um, so, so everybody's affected that way. But in terms of what happens afterwards, it's really difficult. I think, and, you know, and the student I was talking to yesterday wanted to work in the nonprofit sector, but the nonprofit sector is going to be in that hell of a mess for a year, two years. Yeah. Um, it's lost a whole series of forms of income if it, if it lives off shops like Oxfam does or, um, you know, uh, and also a massive increase in demand for, the, for their services in many cases. And that's going to mean it's very, there'll be very little hiring. So, so I was saying to the student, well, think about what's an adjacent kind of job, and a job which you can go and do for a year or two, which will equip you to then get a job when the sector you're interested in rebounds, comes back. Um, I think working for governments is an incredibly good educational experience for anybody who wants to try and influence governments in later life. Um, I think working for the corporate sector is incredibly interesting as well. Uh, uh, maybe in this particular case, you know, she wanted to work for a nonprofit, go and work for one of the more progressive management consultants who are out there who are still doing interesting things and still getting contracts from people like USAID and DFID. So there's different ways to think about it, but don't sit there moping you know you have to try and get a start somehow and find a way which will give you an entry point later on but if you're going to go into a well-paid job which is a massive risk um 
you have to get out after a couple of years before you get too used to it because you'll never work in a nonprofit if you're there for the money. So, right, so right. you know, there are things you have to think about in terms of your life course as well. Right, right, of course. Good. Excellent. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you very much, Duncan Green, for allowing us to turn the tables on you and get your thoughts on all of these important and uh, uh, burning issues right now. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.